As you know, uh, we've been in a series called Kingdom Parables, and uh, we are taking a, a break from that series this morning. And uh, I have a longtime friend that I've invited to preach for us this morning, just a fantastic preacher. His name's Brian Hendry, um, and I met him in the mid-'80s in high school, and uh, he, uh, he was... I mean, just such a good student. He actually liked school and got good grades. He was like the anti-Matt Ortiz. <laughs> and uh, we, we've, we've known each other for, for a very long time. And from a young age even, watching him, he's just been, uh, he's been st- <laughs> a guy of integrity, stability, uh, a guy that, that uh, just lives with a sense of calling and purpose, uh, on his life for as, as, as long as I can remember. And uh, he is just a, a faithful um, uh, pastor and preacher, and he's going to be um, ministering to us uh, this morning. And the text that he's going to be uh, um, preaching from, teaching on, is from Mark chapter 12. We'll have it on the screen. Uh, beginning in, in verse 18, and we're going to go all the way through verse 34. And it says this, And Sadducees came to Jesus, Sadducees, who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take a vow and raise up offspring for his brother. Well, there are seven brothers. The first first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to him, is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob? He is not the God of the dead, but of the living you are quite wrong. Verse 28. And one of the scribes had uh, come up to him and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind and all of your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other beside him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much 
for your word. And we thank you that from Genesis to Revelation, it all points to who Jesus is, what he has done, and what he's doing. And God, I pray, Lord, that you, are, you would open our, our eyes to that this morning, that, that who Jesus is and what he has done and what he is doing would become more real to us. God, I pray that you would open our eyes and open our heart to receive uh, your, your word this morning. Help us to pay attention and to actively li- listen and, and apply it to our lives. Thank you for Brian. Uh, what an amazing friend and pastor that he is. Um, God, we pray that you would bless him in his, in his preaching, that he may preach with, with boldness. And uh, we pray these things in your name. Amen. Would you welcome Brian as he comes up? Thanks, Matt. I'm uh, certainly humbled to be with you this morning. And uh, as Matt said, he's been a good friend of mine for a lot of years Matt, Matt's a great teacher, isn't he? Yeah. Matt's been teaching for years. He taught me in high school. He taught me a few lessons. He taught me uh, one lesson on the football field. He taught me be careful of moving objects coming at you very fast. It hurts. So he taught me what pain and suffering feels like. Matt was, I don't know if you know this, Matt was a really good running back. He could run the ball hard. And I was happening to be scrimmaging against him because I was on the junior varsity. He was on the varsity at this point. And I was playing defensive back and ran up to try to tackle Matt, and he didn't come down very easy. He just rolled me right over, literally flattened me out, and kept running. So thank you, Matt, for teaching me pain and suffering. (laughs) In addition to pain and suffering, Matt also taught me how to rest. And... uh, how to sleep. And that lesson came as we worked together as security guards. Yes, we were security guards, guard card and all, together for a couple years at an office building that, for some unknown reason, they entrusted to our care on many graveyard shifts throughout the night. And uh, Matt had this system down. We used to have to walk through the building and... uh, It was supposed to take like, I don't know, 60 minutes, 90 minutes. Matt had it down to about 15 minutes. And so I'm like, how do you do that? He figured it out and uh, and involved a lot of running. But the cool thing about it was you could do it in 15 minutes, and then you had all the rest of the time to go upstairs and sleep. So we would take turns with our rounds and sleeping. So Matt taught me how to suffer, and he taught me how to rest. And on a more serious note... um, Matt's still teaching me, and I know that uh, his family's gone through some difficult issues. And this past year, my wife's had some minor health challenges that have certainly impacted our life. And uh, Matt has been one that I've looked to, to know what a faithful husband means, to know what it means to serve, to know what it means to stay on task and on mission. And so in the midst of true pain and suffering. He's also been an example to me as well as to this body of how to rest in Christ. So I'm thankful for that. You all are blessed to have a lead pastor like Matt. We're in the gospel of Mark chapter 12, and we've got a lot of verses to cover, and I'm going to do my best to get through all of them this morning. There's one thing 
I know I don't know a lot of you. I know some of you. I see Tony. and Good to see you, brother. Uh, but is there, there's one thing I can say with certainty that will happen very soon to each and every one of us, and it's death. You know, I don't want to be morbid with, with us this morning, but it's a, it's a fact of life, and death is coming to each and every one of us, and it's coming at a time that the Bible says is a vapor. We're here today, and we're gone tomorrow. And how we grasp that, how we think about death matters especially how we think about life after death. What happens? Today we're going to be looking at a group of men, a group of of religious leaders actually, which is surprising because they didn't believe in life after death. They didn't believe, as Matt read earlier in the Scriptures, in the resurrection. They believe that once you die, that's it. It's the end of life. You're snuffed out and there is nothing forward to look forward to. And so they come to Jesus as religious leaders with a false theology trying to put Jesus in this pickle and trap him and and make him look foolish. And really they come with this, this unbelievable, ridiculous story to mock him. And in mocking Christ, they end up really learning some lessons themselves, or at least we can learn some lessons from them. The Gospel of Mark has one main point. And it's really the answer to the question that Jesus poses to the disciples in chapter 8 of the Gospel of Mark where he says, who do men say that I am? And they say, well, some think you're John the Baptist and some think you're Elisha and others the prophets. Yes, but who do you say that I am? And Peter steps up and answers and he says, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are God in human flesh. You are the promised one. You are the one that was promised thousands of years ago. You are the one we've been waiting for. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Mark's attempt throughout his gospel is to hammer that point home. And once again, we see it even in this silly question, the silly story that the Sadducees bring. And one that the lawyer at the end of our passage will bring as well. And it's going to show us more of the glory and the brilliance and the majesty of Christ. This context of this passage is the last week of Jesus' life on earth. Many of us call it the Passion Week. It's, it's, it's Tuesday of the Passion Week. And in, within 72 hours of the passage that we just read, Jesus would be hanging on a cross. Suffering for our sins, paying the price. And before uh, he gets to the cross, the religious leaders who hate him by this point are antagonizing him and they keep bringing all of these accusations and questions, trying to trap him in some way, somehow, and this time it's the Sadducees who come. The Sadducees, again, had a particular belief. As we mentioned, they they didn't believe in life after death. And that certainly had an implication on the way they lived life because they lived for the here and now. They lived for power. They lived for money. They lived for, for, for fame and fortune. They also had a misunderstanding on a lot of scriptures. They believed in the first five books of the the Old Covenant, the books of Moses, known as the Pentateuch, but they didn't consider the prophets or the wisdom literature or any other parts of the Old Testament to be actual Bible. And so they come to Jesus with this 
crazy story, this fabrication, really, this impossibility, according to statistics, that there's seven different brothers, and one of them marries this, this woman, and that man dies. And so, according to the, the, the laws of Deuteronomy, laws, civil laws that God had put in place for the nation of Israel, they were required, as, as the next brother in line, called leveret marriage, was, was what it was called, in, to marry that, that, that wife. And that was part of the law. We may not understand it in our culture today, but God put that in the, in the law for the nation of Israel for two reasons, really to protect that, that lady who in a culture that would have possibly been outcast and uncared for and provide care for her, but also in order to keep that man who had been deceased, his family line going. And so they pull this, this law out of Deuteronomy, and they, they think we're going to trap Jesus and mock him with it. So they say, according to the, the, the leveret marriage laws, that the, the first man dies and the second brother marries her. The second brother dies and the third marries her. And the fourth and the fifth and the sixth, all the way through the seventh. Now, I don't know why they wouldn't have thought about the fact that she might have been putting in something in the food. You know, I, I mean, that's my first thought. I read the scripture, I'm like, that girl ought to be questioned by law enforcement. But Jesus doesn't even deal with the issue that they bring up. He doesn't even touch their silly story. What does he do? Let's look at his answer. In verse 24, Jesus said to them, is this not the reason you are wrong? Not very politically correct. But Jesus isn't putting up with them. He lays it out, and he lays it out very seriously. He says, you are flat out wrong, and I'm going to give you two reasons why you're wrong. He says, is this not the reason you're wrong? First, because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. You don't know your Bibles. You don't understand, and, 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 and it's really interesting when he says they're wrong, that word wrong is the Greek word planeo, which is the, where we get our English word planet. It literally means wanderer, and it has even a greater connotation because it's not just wander. It has the implications of wandering like you're in a drunken stupor, literally. So Jesus, the, the word picture there is fascinating. You guys are flat out wrong, and you're wandering around stumbling over things, and you don't even see it. You can't perceive it. Why? Because you don't see, you don't know, you don't understand the Scriptures. And again, that word know is, is not just intellectual knowledge. It literally means to see, to perceive, to discern. They denied inspiration. They denied inerrancy. And because they were not God-centered in their theology, in their understanding of all of life, they reject and they misinterpret Scripture. Now, folks, these, pro these guys probably knew a whole lot more Bible than you and I. But yet, in the midst of their knowing, they didn't know. Jesus says, you don't know the Scriptures. And not only do you not know the Scriptures, you don't know the power of God. In essence, he's telling them, in your hard heart, you don't understand the awesome power of God who created heaven and earth with just a word. And so because you don't understand that, because you don't believe that, you don't believe he raises the dead? You don't believe he can take our physically dead bodies and give them life? You don't think he can cause the soul to last forever? 
then you certainly cannot fathom the great lengths that he will go in order to keep his promises to his people. You see, because that is the main issue. And it comes out of this foundation that Jesus gives for why they're wrong. You don't understand the Scriptures. You don't know the Scriptures. And when we don't know the Scriptures, we don't have an anchor for truth. And when we don't know the power of God, we doubt God's ability to do what He promised. And listen, these two always go together. You cannot separate the Scriptures and the power of God. This is how Christ rules His church today through His Word. In verse 25, Jesus then begins to expound on it even further. And he says, you don't know the scriptures and the power of God. Then he explains it to them why. He says, for when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. So what does he do? He, he opens up a glimpse for us of what the afterlife looks like. And he says, see, what's happening, Sadducees, because you don't know the scriptures nor the power of God, you think, you think heaven is like earth. You think that all these good gifts that you have here, that it's just going to be like that. And he's saying, in essence, oh, no, it's so much better. It's so much greater. You can't even grasp the glory that's to come. You don't get it. You're focused on the here and now and on the flesh. And so he explains to them, because they try to use this marriage example. He says, you, you, you. When you get to heaven, marriage isn't like this. He says, you're not going to marry nor be given in marriage, but you're going to be like the angels who are in heaven. What does the life of the angels consist of? Primarily, it consists of communion with God. And so in essence, what he's saying is marriage, although it's this great gift, this beautiful gift, and, and I so love my marriage, I love my wife, lay my life down for my wife, but for me to make an idol of my marriage and to think that it's going to, that, that my marriage somehow is as good as it could be or might be, is, is that heaven's going to be just like that. No, Brian, you're missing the boat. It's so much greater. Even the focus of marriage, according to Ephesians 5, is what? Is, is Christ in the church. Your marriage isn't even about you. It's about something so much greater and all our marriages do, not all they do, but one of the main purposes of what they do is they provide for us a glimpse of glory, a glimpse of gospel life, a glimpse of what it looks like for Christ to be the, the groom and the, the servant and the one who lays his life down for his bride and for the bride to love her husband. So the glory of a marriage is the gospel. And may our lives and may our marriages reflect that. He tells them very clearly, when you get in heaven, it, it's not going to be marriage like that. There's going to be a wedding, but it's not between you and your deceased spouse. It's going to be Christ and his bride. Oh, so much greater. You know, people talk a lot about, I can't wait to go to heaven and see so-and-so, and maybe, maybe, and I don't mean to in any way be offensive, but if, if your spouse has gone before you into glory... Or you have so much to look forward to, but let me tell you, the greatest thing you have to look forward to is not even seeing them again. The greatest thing you have to look forward to is seeing the face of Christ. Oh, may we long for him in such a way. May we value communion with God so highly that it lifts our eyes off of this earth onto future glory and change how we live and walk 
today. Then he goes on and tells them something else, and this is the crux I want you to look at, verse 26. He says, and as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the bush, which is found in Exodus chapter 3, how God spoke to him and saying, quote, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Is he not, he is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wandering around in a drunken stupor wrong. You see, what is Jesus doing here? And on the surface, it's very easy for us to understand this and see, he, you know, this is, this is something that, that God had promised, had said to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob hundreds of years before the Scripture. What Jesus does, though, is he pulls back hundreds of years of history to try to answer their question about the resurrection and, and life after death. And God preserving his people and giving life to his people. And it's interesting that he uses this passage. And we do understand that he's saying that because it, it is in the present tense. And that's very clear on the surface to say, look, when, when God appeared to Moses, even though Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had been dead for a long time, he didn't say, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob because I am the God of the living. But it goes even deeper than that. You see, in our traditional American mindset, we may not grasp this, but to the Jew of the first century that's sitting here listening to Christ, he understands that it's so much greater that he's bringing out this, this great understanding that God made a covenant with his people. When God appeared to Abraham, he made a promise to Abraham, and the essence of that promise was, I will be your God, Abraham, for your lifetime? No, forever. And your God and the God of your people, your offspring, which ultimately the offspring, singular he was talking about, was Christ. It was a promise that he would keep his people and that, he, that they would live, not that they would die. And even though they did die, they live. That's what he's trying to get across. And it's rooted in this thing called covenant, this relationship where God made promises to his people, and those promises were carried forth into generations all the way up to us now and will be kept all the way till the end. And so God makes promises to his people. He made a promise to Abraham and a promise to Isaac and a promise to Jacob and into the, the nation of Israel on into the new covenant where all of those who are people of faith, who trust Jesus Christ, who rest in Christ in his finished work, they receive the blessings of this covenant, which is what? Life with God, communion with God, to know God. What is the problem of the Sadducees? In essence, it's that they fail to appreciate the essential link between God's covenant faithfulness and the resurrection which had led the Sadducees into their grievous error. They can't link the two together. In essence, Jesus is saying, you, you, you say you're children of the promise, but you don't believe that God keeps his promises. Church, God will raise the dead. If you believe in Christ and you have been set free by believing the gospel and repentance and responding in repentance and faith, you will live. Though you may die, yet you shall live. They think heaven is like earth. And they think God is like man. And as Jesus said, they are quite wrong. By way of application, before we get into the second point and begin to wrap up, let me just challenge you. 
There are times in our lives where we live like functional Sadducees. Denying the resurrection not by words, but by living for today. Living as if there is no resurrection. Living as if this is all there is. Oh, may we keep our eyes on the blessed hope that we have ahead of us of future glory in Christ. Don't live like functional Sadducees. God keeps His promises, and you can be sure of that. May we live in light of that. May we live for things that glorify God and magnify His work through the gospel. The second point, not only does God keep His promises, but secondly, Jesus is the perfect mediator of God's promises. He is the perfect mediator. That word mediator, according to Grudem, is the role that Jesus plays in coming between God and us, enabling us to come into the presence of God. Christ is the perfect mediator. And he's a mediator by nature because he shares not only the human nature but the divine nature being fully God and fully man. But he also is a mediator by office in in transacting matters between God and man. His office is of prophet, priest, and king. Bringing the word of God to us in himself as the word. Serving as the, the great high priest in not only laying his life down as a sacrifice, but bringing to God the Father the offering that was fully accepted. And the king, whereby he rules his kingdom through his word. He is the perfect mediator. He fulfills the conditions of the covenant for us and thereby reconciles us to God. Why is this important? Let's briefly look at the last part of the passage, verse 28. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? That's a good question, isn't it? I mean, I'd want to know, is what I'm about to do a felony or a misdemeanor? Right? I mean, that's a good question to know. They had 613 different commandments in the Torah. And they were something that they constantly argued about. Which is the most important? Which one should we keep? Where should we focus our time and our effort? And so this guy comes up and asks Jesus that question. And look at his response in verse 29. Jesus answered, the most important is, from Deuteronomy 6, the great Shema, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So he lays this foundation of who God is, the self-revelation of God. God is one. He is, there is no other besides him. He alone stands unique and transcendent. And because of who he is, because of his character and his nature, how should we respond? It goes on and tells us. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Wow. He lays it out. This scribe is amazed. Look at verse 32. And the scribe said to him, you're right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. 
He's starting to get it. He's starting to see something here. This guy actually understood that issues of the heart and worship from the heart was much more important than outward religious exercises. And Jesus responds to him, which is amazing. In verse 34, he says, And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. Beautiful words. Encouraging words. Why? Because you're close. And yet at the same time, incredibly sad words. Why? Because even though you're close, you're not in. You've fallen short. Why is this important? How does this point us to Christ the mediator? I believe that's answered in the question that was never asked. At the end of verse 34, it says, And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. And as I sat at my desk reading this passage of Scripture, I nearly wept and I thought, No, don't stop asking. You're close. You're close. And you got the mediator standing right in front of you. But no one dared ask any more questions. Thank God we can keep asking the questions, right? We can say how. And even though it's not explicit in this passage, it certainly points us to the answer. The answer is Christ himself. How? How are we as sinners How are we who, when standing face to face with the greatest commandment, think about this, the law, the law which is to be kept perfectly, 100%, no failures. I don't know about you, but I have not loved God with all my heart, all my mind, all my soul, and all my strength, probably for more than 10 seconds ever in my life. And so how can I come to a holy God? How can I approach him? How can I come close to the kingdom? I don't want to be close. I want to get in. God, what do I do? What are we left with? And the answer is in 72 hours, Jesus would go to the cross where he would take upon himself after having fulfilled all of the law, after having lived in perfect righteousness, after having lived a perfect lifetime of loving God with all his mind, all his soul, all his strength, a perfectness of having loved his neighbor as himself, he would express the ultimate love by laying his life down, the perfect mediator, God the Son and the Son of God, 100% man, 100% God, giving his life as a sacrifice for my sin. How do I know God keeps his promises? Because we understand through the gospel the perfect mediator. Thousands and thousands of years ago, God made a promise. We read about it in Jeremiah 31. It says, and behold, in verse 31, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, and not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For the covenant, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel After those days, declares the Lord. Now listen to this. Listen to who the onus is on here. And let me give you a hint. It's not me or you. 
God says, I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. You see, the new life that the gospel brings is not a new set of clever strategies or spiritual rehab or fresh resolve to pull myself up by my bootstraps and live a new way out of my old resources. It's an utterly new and foreign importation of divine power that changes us at the very core of who we are when we are changed from the inside out. How do you get in to the kingdom? You trust. You trust. You trust Christ. You don't come with your good works, your outward actions. You come humbly before the cross of Christ. And you say, nothing in my hands I bring. Only to the cross I cling. It's not a matter of do I have enough faith. But it's a matter of is God faithful to keep his promises. And the answer is yes. But because God keeps his promises, and this is what Jesus was trying to get these religious leaders to see and grasp, As Jews, they said these things all the time, but they didn't realize the link between God's covenant faithfulness and the resurrection and the life that he gives and brings. You can fully trust him. You can fully trust him. Let us pray. Father, we look to you come to you this morning only because of Christ, only because you have been faithful to your word, because you made a promise centuries ago and all of history since that day has been you fulfilling those promises. And Lord, we are recipients of this today as we stand in Christ because of his death, burial, and resurrection, because of his perfect life, because he brings his perfect sacrifice as the mediator to you, our Father, and you said accepted, done. Now we stand in you declared righteous, not by works which we have done, but by the finished work of Jesus. Oh, God, thank you today. We respond in gratefulness. We respond in worship. And I pray, oh God, that you would bless this church family in particular, that in grasping the truth of the gospel from the internal work that the gospel does, may it expand outwardly, God, to where they would truly now, in your grace and power, worship you, love you, be able to do this in spirit and in truth, have true community with one another where they love one another deeply. God, where their relationships won't be in any way superficial or based on temporal things, but they would find such a unity in Jesus. Oh God, bless this church. And Lord, may they be on their mission to love their neighbors as themselves. God, apart from you, 
We can't do this. We're so selfish. God, we thank you every time we can open this book that it points to Jesus who is always the answer. God, and now we respond to you in worship. We do this in the name of Jesus.